There is an adage, it's an old adage, that calls us to not miss the forest for the trees. You've probably heard that phrase before. It's simply a call of caution because we have a great tendency to get so obsessed with details that we miss the big picture, miss out on enjoying, you know, the grandness of maybe what we participate in. It could happen in the raising of kids or a job or, a, you know, or whatever. School, we just get so taxed, we get so involved in the little details that we never step back and enjoy the grandeur of what's going on. As I said, we're finishing off section number four in our study of the book of Romans. Romans, Section number four encompassed in chapters nine to 11, a section that we've called the perplexity and the predicament. And what I want to do today to use that kind of vernacular or verbiage is I want to step back a little bit and review some of the grand things that we have seen. Because this three chapter section has caused many of us to have to consider some things that Perhaps we've never considered before, perhaps in their consideration they were hard, difficult, confusing, and perhaps we got so detail-minded that we missed some of the grandeur that is the forest that is God, if I can use that kind of language. And so what I want to do today is I want to go backwards before we go forwards and finish chapter 11. And what I'm going to do under the umbrella of what do we learn about God, I'm going to remind you of 10 things that we have learned about God in Romans 9, 10, up to where we ended off in chapter 11 last week. And then I'm going to give you four more things that we learn about God in today's text. So if you're keeping track at home, 14 points today. But don't worry, I've got sub points under many of them, so it'll be a lot more. So 10 points of review, four points Moving forward under the umbrella, what do we learn about God and discover about him in this section of text? Here's the first. God's word cannot fail. The book of Romans, as we stated on the very front end, way back in chapter 1, is a treatise. It's a defense of sorts. It's where Paul is writing to the church in Rome, made up of Christian Jewish people and Christian Gentile people, and he's sharing the gospel, the good news story of God's work through his son Jesus. And as he writes things out and lays it out, he presumes on, in ongoing measure objections that they would have. And what Paul does is he defends what he is saying, and he presumes objections, and he defends it. In fact, more specifically, what Paul does is he defends the word of God over and over and over again. He presumes objections and he defends the word of God. But what is interesting about how Paul defends the word of God is that he uses the word of God in its defense. Let me show you what I mean by having you go back to chapter 9. Look at what Paul writes in verse 6. Here's another one of the objections he presumes when he writes... But it is not as though the word of God has failed. And then he adds, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. Just to remember the context, Paul has laid out the advantages that the nation of Israel enjoyed and continues to enjoy. But in spite of those great advantages, they did not come to salvation. They rejected Jesus. And he presumes the objection being, well, what about the word of God? God gave us certain promises. He said certain things. And Paul says, no, the word of God has not failed. Well, how do you defend that? How do you defend this objection? Well, what Paul does is he goes back to the word. And he shows 
time and time again how the word of God has not failed. Just to give you a couple of four instances and in how he does this, just put your pretty eyes in chapters 9 and 10 and notice how many times he goes back. I mean, in the very next verse, in chapter 9, verse 7, he goes back to Genesis 21 when he refers to through Isaac shall your offspring be Name. Then when you drop down to verse 12, he references Genesis 25 when he writes, she was told the older will serve the younger. Look at verse 13. He begins that verse with, as it is written. If you drop down to verse 17, he begins this, this way. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, keep on going. Look what he does in verse 25, same chapter. As indeed he says in Hosea, look at verse 29. And as Isaiah predicted, look at verse 33 and how it begins, as it is written. Go to chapter 10, look at verse 5. For Moses writes, look at verse 8 of the same chapter, but what does it say? Keep on going, verse 11, same chapter. For the scripture says, take a look at verse 19, referencing Deuteronomy 32. He writes, for Moses, first Moses says, verse 20, Isaiah is bold to say, and Isaiah 65 is referenced at the beginning of verse 21. But of Israel, he says, do you get the point? Over and over and over again, what Paul does is he defends the word of God by using the word of God and showing the people who are reading this letter why the word of God has not failed. There's something for us in this. In fact, I would suggest to you this is one of the reasons why we teach the word of God here we believe, make no mistake, and to take things and making sure that we get them in no uncertain terms, we believe this is the word of God. Specifically, we believe that it is inerrant. It is without error. We also believe that it is infallible, meaning that it speaks into areas of truth and faith wholly and truly and won't fail to accomplish its purpose. We also believe that it is God-breathed and inspired that the Holy Spirit moved in men, working within their unique, uniquenesses to bring us exactly what he willed. But we also believe that it is not only God-breathed in its production, but it's God-breathed in its proclamation, that it's living and active, that the Spirit of God works through the Word of God, the Word of God that he inspired. And any place where the Word of God is proclaimed, the Spirit of God is there because he's pleased anywhere where his Word is proclaimed. We see this modeled in Paul's life here with the Christians living in Rome. We also want to live that out in our lives too. One of my favorite verses one that I've taught on before, Paul writes this. It's found in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13, where he says, we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it, not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. And that last phrase points to its activity, that it's living it's moving as the Spirit fills the Word of God as it's proclaimed. By the way, one litmus test, if you've received the Word of God as what it really is, the Word of God will be your willingness to suffer for it. It's next verse in the same text. Will you suffer for it? As I spend time with uh, young guys who are 
seeking to fill pulpits and plant churches. One of the books that I read that has become a favorite of mine is called Dying to Preach. One of the things I say to guys, if they're thinking about being preachers, that you need to preach in such a way that you're willing to die literally for it. And if you die not literally for it physically, you're willing to die to certain things for it. That you're willing to die to favor from some. You're willing to die to numbers. You're willing to die to difficult situations where people disagree with you. You need to be willing to die to preach. But that's not just exclusive for a person standing in a pulpit, leading a church. It's It's a call for us too. Whether we sit leading a community group and you're a community group leader, you sit having coffee with someone talking about the gospel and you're going through and pouring through the word, we need to be willing to die to certain things. Because it's in that dying saying, I believe this is truly the word of God that we demonstrate to the world around us that we believe this is the word of God. And we're ambassadors, nothing more, but certainly nothing less. So that's the first thing that we see reminded of as we gaze at the beautiful, beautiful forest that is God. Here's the second, God is just. This point comes out of another objection that Paul presumes in verse 14 of chapter 9 where he writes, what shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? Paul responds to his own question by stating by no means. There are three reasons why God never acts unjustly towards us. Here's the first. Because of who we are without him. This is is Paul's whole defense regarding God's election. That if God chose not to elect anyone, it would not be unjust. The fact that he elects any at all only makes him merciful. Let me see if I can illustrate this for you. I borrow this illustration and trying to work it and mold it for, I'm going to paraphrase it in a sense for our time this morning. Uh, if, if I committed murder and I was sentenced to life in prison and I came before a judge and I asked a judge for that judge for a pardon and the judge said no, would the judge be unjust? No, he'd be totally just. He'd be a just judge. He's giving me what I deserve. Well, if I came before the same judge, committed the same crime, had the same penalty, asked for a pardon and the judge said, by all means, go. I'm extending you mercy. Would that judge be unjust? No. Now, some of you are cringing right now when I say that. I'm going to come back to that. Just keep that point in mind. What happens if 10 people came before the judge, all committed murder, all sentenced to the same sentence, asking for pardon? And the judge says, I'm giving you five pardon and five, you're staying in prison. Would the judge be unjust? No, he'd extend mercy and justice. Now, I said something earlier I said I was going to come back to if you're cringing at it, and I made the statement that if that judge, if I came before him asking for pardon, gave me pardon, would he be unjust? The fact of the matter is he would. He would. He'd be extending mercy, but justice wouldn't be served. Justice wouldn't be served. Mercy would, but justice wouldn't. If I came before, if 10 people came before a judge and he gave five freedom and five had to stay in, five would receive mercy, five would receive justice, but there would be no justice on the five who committed the crime. God didn't do that, however. We stand before God as judge having committed a penalty, deserving full, full penalty for that, that we committed. 
but God extends us mercy. But he is also a God of justice. So how are both satisfied? So Because think about it, Westside, if you watch TV and you hear of someone who's committed a great crime and they get off scot-free, what do you cry out? It's unjust. That's absolutely unjust. I, I, I can't handle judges like that. How did he get off? How did she get off? That's an unjust act. They need to serve their penalty. We have a good God who's a just God as well. So how does he let us off? In the mercy that he extends and satisfies justice. Jesus. Jesus. Mercy extended to us, justice on Jesus. Justice on Jesus, him taking our penalty and serving it for us. Mercy through Jesus and the act that he served on that cross for us. But to even take this analogy a step further, and I borrow this from a number of different places, the judge that we stand before didn't simply bring in another to serve our penalty. That judge that we stand before took off his robe, came down and said, I'm taking your place. God is just, and he never acts unjustly towards us because of who we are without him. In Jesus, God is both just and merciful. Here's a second reason why God never acts unjustly towards us. It's because of who he is. See, God doesn't simply act justly. He is just, with no injustice playing a role in his nature. As John writes in 1 John chapter 1, verse 5, God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. Make no mistake, God permits evil. God allows evil. God even uses evil for his and our good, but is never the orchestrator of it. Why, has God, why does God never act unjustly? Number three, because he is that by which justice is measured by. See, God defines justice. God doesn't act in submission to a definition, but is that by which all actions are measured by. See, there's nothing higher than God that he has to succumb to. I have stated this before in relationship to Jesus when he declares that he is the truth. Jesus is not true, although he does speak nothing but true statements, but he is truth. He is that by which all true things are measured by. God is just. All just acts are measured by him. Which flows into the third thing that we are to observe about God in this section of text, and that is God is God. This is no more evidence than the analogy given in verses 20 and 21 of chapter 9. Let me read it for you. Paul begins, but who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Well, what is molded say to its molder? Why have you made me like this? Has a potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? See, our relationship to God is likened here to a lump of clay lying before a potter. And Paul's point is that intrinsically potters have rights over the clay they work with. The inerrant right, by the way, for all you oldies and goldies, this inerrant right of the potter over the clay, do you remember the song we used to sing coming out of this? You're the potter, I'm the clay. 
right? Remember that song? Have your way, you, have your way, Lord, have your way. No, no, just wow, right? Most of you are just excited you got your aunt on your car this week, so I understand why. <laughs> I get it, I get it, all right? Well, for the four of us that grew up with wood-burning televisions, that song, How It Went, was have your way, Lord, have your way. You're the potter, I'm the clay. Mold me, make me as you will while I'm waiting, yielded still. If I could be so bold, I think that much of the resistance that comes out of chapter 9 specifically comes because our individualism and self-worship is so rampant that when confronted with anything that challenges it, we fight and resist. Even to the point where we look at God's word and workings in our limited state and declare that's not fair. So what do we see so far in our time of looking back? Well, number one, God's word cannot fail. Number two, God is just. Number three, God is God. And here's the fourth. And we've touched on it a little bit, but let me laser in on it even more. And that is God is merciful. He's merciful. If we demand justice from God, and we all do, as I said, evidence when we cry out unjust, unjust, when confronted with the many horrors around us. By the way, echoing that we've been created in the image of God, a God of justice, that's why we can't handle it. That's why we cry out when something we see is unfair. But if we cry out for justice, then it demands that we cry out for God's mercy too. For if God were only just, none of us stand a chance. But because God is merciful, we too can become his children. Let me illustrate this again. I'm a dad, as I think most of you know, I have two sons, 12 and 10. Uh, I was a spanker as a dad. Uh, I'm coming out of that stage. They're getting a little too big. Uh, We wrestle, they knee drop me, and so I don't want to spank them anymore because they'll take it out on me (laughs) that night. But I spanked. I know some people don't spank. Uh, You believe what you believe. I'll believe the right way. So I spank. (laughs) But me and my wife, we had a grid for spanking. If if you lied, you got a spank. And if it was totally an act of disobedience. So if I said stop and you went, don't touch, you touched, whatever. Don't take the car out, you take the car out. Five-year-old driving down. Right? It's just wrong. Right? You just can't do that. Daddy doesn't want you to do that. And so those would be times where I said, all right, bud, let's go. Head down to your room. Let's go. Drop them. Here we go. All right? That's, that's what we do. But every once in a while, and probably not as much as my kids would have hoped for, there would be times where I'd have them crawl up in my lap and I would say to them, you totally deserve to be spanked. You deserve to be punished for what you, what you did. You had an act of disobedience, but here's the thing. I'm not going to spank you. I'm going to extend mercy to you. I'm going to extend mercy to you because that's what God the Father did through his son Jesus for me and you. And I want to paint a picture of what the Father, the Heavenly Father, is like. We need mercy because we as his children have all disobeyed. Mercy is not getting what you deserve and God extends mercy. We'll be reminded of this act of God mercy action of God as we end our time together in the last portion of text in chapter 11, but we still have a few more points of review. Other words used to describe God in this section connected to his mercy that I'll call points five, six, and seven are God is gracious, our God is compassionate, and our God is kind. 
All words that used are used to describe the Father, God the Father in this text. He's merciful. He's gracious. He's compassionate. He's kind. We saw the kindness of God talked about last week in our text in verse 22, where we had this kind of contrast between God's kindness and God's severity. I reminded us last week, when is God ever severe with us? Why is he ever severe with us? Only for one reason, when we reject in ongoing ways and in ongoing measure his kindness and his grace that he's extending to us. And praise God that he's long-suffering and he's forbearing and he keeps on in his patience extending, extending, extending kindness and grace to us so that we would come to a point of salvation. Repentance leading to salvation as Paul writes about earlier in the book of Romans. Here's the eighth point of review just doubling back and this is a key one as they all are. And that is Jesus is God. Double back, look at chapter 9 again one more time and notice verse 5. Paul writes there, To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. So what do we get so far? Well, the Christ is God, Christ, Messiah, anointed one. He is God. But to make sure that we understand that the Christ is Jesus, therefore Jesus is God, just notice what John writes in 1 John chapter 5, verse 1, when he writes, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. Now, why does he say that, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ? Because you and I can't come to a point where we believe Jesus is the Christ without the Spirit of God invading our lives. We can't come to a point where we say Jesus is the Christ without believing it, without the Spirit of God working in us. That's why if you, in your mind, right now, and in your heart, you go, yeah, I believe Jesus is the Messiah. He is the anointed one. He is the Christ. He is God. As John writes, you can know your salvation. It's internal testimony to you. It's one of the great, great, great acts of grace by the Spirit of God in us. And everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. Who is the liar? John asks a couple of chapters earlier. He who denies that Jesus is the Christ. Jesus is not a God. He is not a prophet, although he is capital P prophet. He is not simply an enlightened one. He's not simply a great teacher, a great ethicist. Jesus is God, Yahweh God, eternal God. He's God. He's God. By him, through him, for him, all things are held together. All things are for him, through him, by him. Nothing has been made that was made that wasn't made by him. He's God. Woven into this, according to the book of Romans, when and how does Jesus testify or validate his deity fully? Well, Romans chapter 1 verse 4 answers that question for us when Paul writes there that Jesus was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness. How? By his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. 
So when does, in greatest measure, measure, Jesus testify, validate that he is indeed God? It's by his resurrection. What kind of resurrection? An allegorical resurrection? A spiritual resurrection? No, a physical resurrection. Thomas, man, Thomas, put your finger in my side. Thomas, behold my hands. Hey, guys, gather around. Let's have some fish. He ate, he appeared, he touched, and was touched. Jesus rose from the grave, which ties in nicely with the thing that we learn about God in this section of Romans, and that is God raised Jesus from the dead. The importance of this is seen in verse 9 of chapter 10, where Paul writes this, If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. I want you to note why this is important, however. The importance of this doesn't come because we must pass through some confessional or sort of this cerebral matrix, right, that allows us to walk into this club called Christian. This isn't a magical mantra. What Paul is stating here is that if Jesus didn't rise from the grave and affirming in other places, the Christian faith is worthless. And therefore, this isn't simply just a confession alone, but a confession that recognizes that if Jesus didn't rise from the grave, we are still in our sins. This is why this is so key. Our entire faith rests on the resurrection of Jesus. Our faith rests in that. So the resurrection of Jesus evidences the claims of Jesus and the resurrection of Jesus ensures the claims of Jesus. Here's a tenth and final reminder and it reminds us of last week's text and it springboards us ahead into this week's and that is God's power is in the gospel. Uh, We saw this last week. The power that enables even those who have for a lifetime rejected Jesus, a rejection built on generations and generations of rejection, to be grafted in the vine that is Jesus is the gospel of Jesus. That's the power of God. That's the power of God spoken of in last week's text in verse 24 that Paul first defines in chapter 1, verse 16. This is the power of God, the gospel of God. It's the gospel, and what is the gospel? Well, Cole's notes version of the gospel. The gospel in its entirety is Jesus. Jesus is the gospel. Uh, Mark 1, verse 1, right? This is the gospel of Jesus. Jesus is the gospel. But the Cole's notes version of the gospel is Jesus came. He died for a reason. He died for our sins. He paid the penalty for our sins. He took our place on the cross for our sins so that we could become one with God. That's the word atonement, at one meant, at one with God. So Jesus came, he died on the cross for our sins, taking our place, and he imputed, he gave us. Amputation of our sins, imputation of his righteousness on us. But he didn't just die on the cross, he was buried in the ground, he lay in the tomb for three days, and he rose from the grave. So we're celebrating on Easter Sunday. He rose from the grave, he appeared over a period of time, up towards 500 at once. He appeared, he talked, he taught, he ate, and then he ascended, where he sits in finished work as far as the necessity for our salvation. Nothing else is necessary for our salvation, although he continues to work with us and in us, 
but he sits at the right hand of the Father in finished work to that one day where we, and we do, we plead, plead, come Jesus soon, where he will return again and we will see him face to face and in that scene of him face to face, we will become like him. It's this gospel that is our common ground and nothing else is our common ground for Jewish and Gentile people alike. Paul writes of this foundation that brings oneness to all people. In Ephesians 3 verse 6, when he writes, this mystery is that the Gentiles are also fellow heirs, members of the same body and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. It's our foundation. That's our common ground. That's what brings red and yellow, black and white, male, female, slave-free, barbarian, Scythian, and so forth together. Rich, poor, Together, it's the oneness of the gospel. It's realized in the gospel. And therefore, we don't call people to our denomination. We don't want you to follow our denomination. We want you to follow Jesus. People aren't saved by our ecclesiology or our eschatology or our soteriology or our pneumatology. My guess is that both John Calvin and Jacob Arminius will all be in heaven, both of them. They may not be hanging out in the same cloud, but they'll be in heaven. That's a joke for seminary students. That's seminary joking stuff. Why I'm so passionate about this perhaps comes because I heard this week of a family that left Westside because we do film and theology nights. I was grieved at that. And I don't use that word haphazardly. I wasn't grieved because they simply left. If I was grieved over people leaving, I wouldn't plant churches. I was grieved because in their time here, they hadn't heard enough of the gospel to arrive at a place where the gospel became bigger than a matter of conscience. I grieved over that. grieved over that. Where is the power of the gospel evidenced? As we get to Romans chapter 14, and I can't wait to get there, but just to give you a little taste, the power of the gospel isn't when you and I agree on all, all things. There are non-essentials that we will walk through that we will disagree over. But the power of the gospel is not that we be in a ministry together where we agree, agree on every little thing. Whether you should drink wine or not, whether you should raise your kids in Christian school, homeschool, or no school. Don't do that. But you know what I'm talking about, right? Right? Your view on, on the gifts of the Spirit, your view on end times, whether you like using the King James Version or the NIV or the ESV, which is God's Bible. It, it, I, whether we agree on all that or not. That's not where the power of the gospel is. The power of the gospel is when we totally disagree on those things and we lay them aside and go, this is our foundation. That's our foundation. And it's bigger than this crap. Those are the 10 things by way of reminder that we have observed about God thus far. Are there more? Certainly there are more. But for the sake of time, I gave you 10. Let me finish with four more, and by 
so doing take you to our text. Let me give you the four on the front end, and then we'll double back in one at a time. If you're taking notes, number 11, God's ways are irrevocable. Number 12, God's ways are unsearchable. Number 13, God's ways are inscrutable. And number 14, all glory is owing to God. So let's take them one by one. The irrevocableness of God is seen in verses 25 to 28, and it's actually a word, irrevocableness. I looked it up. Here we go. Verse 25, chapter 11, lest you be wise in your own sight. I do not want you to be unaware. That phrase, by the way, I do not want you to be unaware, is something Paul uses quite often. It's a really important phrase. It basically should cause you to highlight what comes next. It's Paul saying, take notice. What I'm about to say is very important. Wake up. If you've been sleeping, wake up, take notice. I don't want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers and sisters. A partial hardening has come upon Israel. Until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in, and in this way, all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. As regards the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. But as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. Just when you thought it was going to get easy right? Just skate through chapter 11. Lots in here. What's going on? Let's take a look at it one by one. Like last week, first thing to note, Paul's concern out of the gate is that the Gentiles believers are becoming proud or perhaps could become pride, pride filled in their salvation. Perhaps thinking, look, we got it. They didn't. We're in. They're not. Look at us. We obviously have something that they don't. And Paul hits this head on. And how he hits this head on is he shares a mystery. You see that word in verse 25. A mystery we can assume that was divulged by Paul to Paul by the Spirit of God. What is that mystery? Well, that for a time, God has hardened the hearts of the Jewish people until the fullness, verse 25, of the Gentile people are saved. But upon that fullness being realized, God would save all Israel thereafter. Huh. How do we make sense of this? Well, now, although some of us may struggle with this, or maybe many of us will struggle with this, I'm not going to address the struggle of hardening, hardening, taking off hardening. We've talked about that much over the last couple of months, so I'm not going to hit that. What I'm going to do, and I'm not scared of hitting it, I'm not resisting it, but we've hit it, so I encourage you to double back, listen to some of the messages that we have given before this, but let me instead address two major questions that arise here. Here's the first. When Paul says in verse 26, all Israel will be saved, does he mean all Israel? Three views. Remember I said 14 points, subpoints. Here's three views under this point. Actually, I haven't even got to my 11th point yet. Three views. There are those that hold to a two-covenant theory. What does that mean? Simply, people believe that God has one covenant with Israel and one with the church. I do not hold to this view at all. There is one and only one new covenant realized in the blood of Jesus, as Jesus reveals in the upper room. And besides, if this were, were the case, Paul's angst for his disbelieving Jewish brethren way back in chapter 9, verses 2 and 3 would make no sense. Here's a second view. 
There are those who believe that at the end of the age, the entire last generation of people will be saved before the consummation of Jesus' kingdom. So every Jewish person alive before the consummation of Jesus' kingdom, Jesus coming again, will be saved, every last one of them. Good Bible people, good Bible believing, Jesus-centric people hold to this. There's a lot, many people hold to this. John Piper holds to this. Those who hold this view believe that the third view is just too anticlimactic when viewed in light of verses 25 to 28, the verses that I just read. What is that third view? That all Israel pertains to the completion of a remnant within Israel who will be saved. Not all as in everyone, but all as in the fullness of a remnant. In spite of those who say that this view seems anticlimactic, this is where I land. I hold to this because of the context of chapter 11 specifically, and all of 9 to 11 for that matter. The context is remnant-based. That's the context. For example, just double back, look at verses 4 and 5 in chapter 11, where Paul writes there, but what is God's reply to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed to the knee of Baal. So too at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. And if you drop down to verses 13 and 14, Paul writes, now I'm speaking to you Gentiles inasmuch then as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry. Why? In order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous and thus save some of them. I think it's remnant-based. However, regardless, what must be kept in mind is that whatever view you take, except for the first view, how they are saved remains the same. If God chooses to pour out his saving grace on the entire nation of Israel before Jesus returns, every one of them will be saved by grace as they respond in faith and confess with their mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in their hearts that God raised him from the dead. So if that's the first question, what is all referring to? Here is the second. Why will this take place? Like, what's the purpose for this? Like, God, why are you doing this, man? Right? Why are you doing this? Well, this leads to the 11th thing that we observe about God. Why this takes place is because God's ways are irrevocable. Look at verse 29. Paul writes, For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. Simply the salvation of Israel at the end of history is the fulfillment of covenantal promises that were made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And to quote one author, he puts it this way, God will not forsake his people, but has pledged in accordance with this covenantal love to graft them again onto the olive tree. As we see at the end of verse 28, the saved remnant, as I would argue, is beloved and would be grafted for the sake of their forefathers. And just get this, taste this. This is so wondrous. What Paul says at the end of verse 28 is, for our sake, your sake, our sake, the Gentile people's sake, they are enemies of the gospel. For our sake. This is what we looked at last week. So salvation could be extended to us. But then he goes on and says, for the sake, for the sake of their forefathers. The guys that started this whole thing, called by God. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the patriarchs, for their sake, this remnant is still beloved. And they'll be grafted in. Because God's words and promises 
and gifts are irrevocable. This reminds us of the first first thing that we learned about God today. God's word never fails. Why? For it's irrevocable. Whether you believe it or not, it's irrevocable. Paul continues in verses 30 to 32, some of the most wondrous verses in all of the book of Romans. Paul writes, For just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience, again reminding us of what we've hit already today and also last week, so too they now have been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, they also may now receive mercy. For God has consigned, really important word, all to disobedience that he may have mercy on all. A word should have jumped out at you in those three verses. It's the word mercy. Shows up in verse 30, twice in verse 31, and again in verse 32. What does consign mean? What does consign mean? Well, you've been to a consignment store, right? You've given stuff over. It means to hand over, to sign over. It means to seal. But notice what we see here. What have all people been given over to by God? What have they been consigned to by God? Disobedience. Why? Remember that word that we looked at, verse 30, 31, 32? So that every single one of us in all times, in all places, all nations, all tribes, all kingdoms would realize that they have been saved and saved only because of the mercy of God. Think about that. That none of us would think, "Ah, I must have something that God really wants or I've been promised because of my lineage or these customs or these workings or these outpourings or my giving or my praying or my tithing. I've been saved by mercy. All of us saved by mercy. And what should our response be to this fact that every single one of us have been saved by mercy? How does Romans chapter 12 verse 1 begin? Therefore, by the mercies of God, present your bodies as living sacrifices. Because you are saved because of mercy. Mercy with God pouring his justice out on his son for us. So present your bodies as living sacrifices because this is a spiritual act of worship. And all Romans 12, 13, 14, 15, 16 do is they give specifics on how we live so that we can display that our bodies are in fact living sacrifices. Is there wonder in this, verses 30 to 32? A wrestle in this? Do we want to know more? Is there some itching that still needs to be scratched? Yes. But this leads to the 12th and 13th thing that we learn about God as shown in verse 33. What are those two things? God's judgments are unsearchable. 
and God's ways are inscrutable. Let me read the verse. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. Verse 33, just so you know, begins a song of sorts. It's a a doxology. Paul begins by saying that although God's methods and means go beyond our comprehension to grasp fully, they are unsearchable in full discovery sense, he is also inscrutable. Meaning he is not arbitrary. He governs the universe with total and perfect love, justice, and righteousness. And Westside, if you take one application out of this text, take this. We need to rest in verse 33. We need to rest in the fact that there are things that go far beyond our measure and ability to comprehend, at least fully. And when we butt up against those things that go, I don't get it, man. I don't get it. We rest in the fact that God is inscrutable, that he's loving, that he's just, that he's good. And everything that God does filters through that matrix, that grid of who he is. We rest in that. We rest in that. Leading to the 14th and final point this, I guess, afternoon now. All glory is owing to God. Verses 34 to 36. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. I like how one commentator sums this up, and with this I will close and lead into a time of response. He does a far better job wrapping this up than I ever could. He writes, in the final analysis, all of us are absolutely dependent upon God, as the questions in verses 34 and 35 display. God owes nothing to us. And who are we to give advice to God or criticize his ways? God is the source of all things, including ourselves. He is the power that sustains and rules the world that we live in. And God works out all things to bring glory to himself. And therefore, the all-powerful God deserves our praise. If I could borrow from the vernacular that I use on the front end, God is made up of many great, wonderful, and intricate pieces. Pieces that we need to focus on and appreciate. But in so doing, let us never miss out on the grandeur that makes up the totality of our God. A God, again, who is worthy to be praised. Let me pray. Holy Spirit, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the word that you inspired in its production. And I thank you for your word that you still are moving and active in. God, I thank you for your mercy. Jesus, I thank you for being the agent of mercy. Taking the justice that we so deserved upon yourself so that through that act of justice, your Father would extend mercy to us. I thank you for that. 
Father, I pray for everyone in this room today that your spirit would rest heavy in all of our hearts and minds, that good seed wouldn't be snatched by our enemy, that as we go into a time of response, that we would respond, every single one of us, in the ways that you have for us and are calling us to. I pray for those that don't know you this this morning, this afternoon. I pray for those that have wondered about you and they're getting glimpses of you maybe today in ways they've never glimpsed before. And I pray that they would not resist. They would say yes to you, coming to you. That if they're sensing there's a belief being stirred and there's a, a regeneration taking place, that there's something going on in their hearts, I pray that they would say yes. They wouldn't resist that which is truly irresistible. I pray for those of us that do know you here that you would further us along in our walk and journey with you as you promise. But we rest in that promise and pray that it would be fulfilled today. That those things that need to be repented of would, restorations of relationships, acts of worship, whatever it is, Father, I just pray this would be a great time of ministry. And that as the band leads us, that it wouldn't be just the singing of songs, but it would be heart's cry. Hearts crying out to you, hearts that have been changed, hearts that are leaning into you, not just words from our lips. So I, I pray to that end. I pray to that end. And Jesus, as we remember you through the elements of bread and wine, I pray, Father, that your son Jesus and that you, Jesus, in this time would be glorified and that we would come back to the cross knowing that it, it is our foundation. It's our common ground. This is why all of us can come down together without exception, together, today, partaking. I thank you for the common ground of the cross, and I thank you that we can meet you at the cross and meet one another at the cross. So I pray that this would be a beautiful, beautiful, beautiful time for your glory's sake and our joy. In Jesus' name, amen.